there, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly show that takes a look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we dive into the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. Well, that's typically what goes around, around here anyway. My name is Claude Collin, and I got something special lined up for ye. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash ow. How good it is, Pod. So for those of you who are counting, this is show number 85. Now, the 84 that I've done previously have all had more or less the same structure. So this one is going to come as a surprise to you. But I am so glad to have had the opportunity to do this one. Christopher McKittrick has written about several movie projects, some of which you may not have heard about until you read his material. He's interviewed some Hollywood big shots, including Roger Corman and Richard Linklater. Uh, He's written at least one article defending a movie that's kind of tough to defend, and I've done that with one of my shows here, so I know what he's going through there. He's written essays on pop culture and a bunch of fictional pieces, and chances are that if you've read an online article about the entertainment industry, you've probably seen his work. His most recent book is titled Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones and New York City, which is about the long-term relationship that the greatest city in the world has with the world's greatest rock and roll band. Chris and I spoke about that book this week through a Skype interview because we are on opposite coasts. I think we had a great talk. We connected right away. I think he was a little bit glad to speak to someone who actually read the book instead of going in cold because we spent nearly an hour chatting and we could have easily gone longer. Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue is available now through Amazon com and if you've been following the show on social media you've already seen the link but i'll put it up again for you both there and on the website and i'll tell you what i know a lot of arcane rock and roll trivia but i learned a bunch of new things reading this book chris took the same approach to his work that i take to this show you hear a rumor you do a little digging to figure out if the story is true and then you report back what you found out only in his case He stuck with a single band, and he kept going until he had a couple hundred pages written out. All right, enough of my chatter. Here's me with Chris McKittrick. Why don't you tell me just a little bit about yourself and and, and how you came to... uh, you know, be such a big Rolling Stones fan, or was it something that you kind of grew into as you started doing the research for this? Yeah, so um, my background actually is more so in writing on film and entertainment in that in that aspect. Um, but I always wanted to do more writing on music. And when it came to the idea of what am I going to write about, I almost immediately went to the Rolling Stones because not only are they one of my favorite bands, but on top of that, they, I feel that they have not gotten their due in terms of books. I'm sure there's a lot of Rolling Stones books out there. Um, but if you compare it to the stack of books that are about the Beatles, it, you're, you're going to be knocked over by the – you're going to be buried yeah, in Beatles books absolutely. Before, you, before you get covered in Rolling Stone books. Right, and um, it's one of the reasons that I've avoided covering Beatles songs in my show is because they've been just so extensively documented. It's like, well, what, what new can I bring to the table here? Right, right. And uh, so that was kind of the, uh, the, the first reason I went for this. And the second reason is I'm a born and raised New Yorker and – it, um, not only did I always love and appreciate the Stones, but I always thought it was interesting how many references to New York they have in their songs. And I know we're going to focus on the 60s and, and the, the 60s through the 80s, but after that, um, the Stones, oh, and actually 
going back to the 75 tour of the Americas, the Stones always did these giant publicity stunts in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know what was the deal with this band from across the pond? Uh, why was New York such a home to them? And the more I just, you know, started kind of a, a project to do on the side, you know, what, what are these New York references in the songs? You know, what's, what's the connection there? And I kind of realized, wait, there's a story here. There is a band that really does appreciate the, uh, the musical heritage of New York. And on top of that, the, the changes in New York City from the, from the 60s to the 21st century, there's a lot, of, a lot of reflection in the changes in the Stones, how they went from, you know, the kind of the dirty cousins of the Beatles <laughs> all the way to being this, this corporate juggernaut that they are now where it's, you know, stadium shows that gross millions of dollars in one night, not, not unlike the New York city of the 21st century. Right. So, uh, so, uh, that, that kind of drew me to that. And I was glad because, uh, even though I mainly write about film, I always want to talk a music, to- uh, tackle a music topic and, if I'm going to tackle a music topic, why not the world's greatest rock and roll band? Right. I was I was kind of surprised by it because when when I first got the you know, the copy of the book, I was a little bit surprised because what I thought I was going to get was this story about a couple of years that the Stones tended to be in New York City and that kind of thing. Like like you were going to cover some specific period that was going on. That sure. and because of the title, can't give it away on Seventh Avenue. Okay, he's going to concentrate on the period of time that led up to the song Shattered. And yep. I was very surprised when it turned out to be like the way the city and the stones just really meshed together over years and years and years and, and just the relationship that the two had with one another. And, and that, that wound up being a big, big, wonderful surprise. <laughs> I'm glad I surprised you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've certainly read uh, w- one of the things uh, people have asked me since, since this come out, they go, oh, so are you doing... Springsteen and New Jersey next. And I go, well, that's not interesting to me. First of all, that's been documented endlessly. And, and to me, that seems like it's just, and then, and then Bruce went here and then he went to the boardwalk and then he went here. And I was like, I really want to tell a story of, 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 you know, it's not just about, as you pointed out, it's not just about, then they played a concert at Madison square garden. Then they played a concert at giant stadium. Then they recorded in the studio. I wanted to, I, I wanted to see how, the culture, uh, um, uh, American culture, and more specifically New York City culture, reflected some of the things the band was going through and some of the movements the band hopped on. I mean, and yeah, of course, the title Can't Give It Away from 7th Avenue comes comes from uh, Shattered on the Some Girls album, which really is their New York City album, if you have to pick one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's jump back into the 60s. And, and you know, while a lot of a lot of their their exposure to New York City came. There was a little bit of touring, but a lot of it was with the Ed Sullivan Show. They did they did the show it had to be like what five six times, correct? Okay, and and so um, and early on, you know, their their first couple of shows. I mean, it, it, they they didn't necessarily. Um, you know, really tear up the place the way the Beatles did, but they did solid performances, and even early on for the for the Stones, but but they were still you know kind of known as a little bit of a blues band, and and so they really hadn't really done that breakthrough yet, had they? No, oh, and uh, the 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 real the kind of the angle of the Stones when they first came to America is you really have to contrast it to when the Beatles showed up. When the Beatles showed up, they already had hit songs, and when they got off the plane at JF- JFK, they were just overwhelmed with this mass hysteria of the Beatles' arrival. 
in contrast, when the Stones arrived, their album had just come out. They had no hit songs. Um, they had a little bit of a crowd in New York. But in general, they were really an unknown commodity. They were riding the coattails of the Beatles' success. And so, yes, when they appeared on The Sullivan Show that first time, they were still not quite known by America. Of course, the crowd still went wild with screaming teenage girls, and Sullivan immediately announced to the press that the Stones would never appear on the show (laughs) again, which he quickly backtracked on. Um, In fact, Bill Wyman, Stones bassist, uh, said that while publicly... Sullivan said they would never appear on the show again. Privately, he told the band that they were a huge hit. And yeah, the parents hated you, but the kids loved you and we'll have you back again. And of course, they did come back again. But yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's, it's a very different... Um, when you, if, you, if you go back and you watch those first couple of Sullivan appearances, very different from the Beatles appearances where you, know, you can barely hear uh, the Beatles. And I'm sure... Um, the Beatles barely could contain their own excitement. You see it on their faces. Yeah. The Stones were a little more subdued because simply they were not the uh, they were not who they were going to become just quite yet. Right, and I think it was during that first tour after their first appearance that that they, um, if I remember correctly, because I, I remember doing a show on the song Satisfaction. And they had already been on Sullivan. They were touring. They were in a hotel in Florida, which now belongs to. Um, uh, Scientologists, <laughs> and yes. and it was at that hotel that they, that satisfaction really got written, and then they started to record it. Not much longer, long after that, in uh, Chicago, correct? Yes, the the first version of the song was recorded in Chicago, and then the version that we all know and love was record was finished and recorded in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And 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 then I guess probably the most famous story about the Rolling Stones has to be "Let's Spend the Night Together." <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, one of the fun things about writing a book about a band as, as uh, legendary as the Rolling Stones is all the stories that come up about these va- all these legends that, and myths that accumulate over the years. And, and as you write and do research on, uh, with, with a book like this, you start to realize that some of the things that you read, some of the things that have been told over and over again are not quite true. The big story behind that appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show is that Mick Jagger was not allowed to sing Let's Spend the Night Together. It was considered too racy, too sexual, not acceptable for Sullivan's audience. So the story that has been repeated, and Jagger himself is guilty of also uh, putting this story out there, is that he, he was told minutes before he went on the show, and he never really actually said... Uh, what he was supposed to say, let's spend some time together. He just mumbled the words. Well, of course, if you watch the clip, he clearly does say, let's spend some time together instead of the word he's not allowed to say, nice. Um, yeah, and, but it's also pretty clear that he's about to sprain an eyeball by rolling it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. His eyes are basically rolling out of his head. And on top of that, um, there are actually news reports. And like this is what I said, what's fun about writing books like this, diving into the research. Uh, newspaper accounts that, that were announced the day before that the Stones were appearing and playing their new single. However, because of you know, concerns about the audience, they would actually be changing the words. So this was announced to the press a day ago, and with, with the Stones commenting like, yes, 
we understand, you know, like being well aware that this, but of course the legend changes. It makes for a better story for Jagger to say it was sprung on him, you know, minutes before he walked out. Um, but that's also goes in line with, with so many of the stories that come out of the Sullivan show. Uh, granted when people think the Sullivan show, they, they automatically think of the Beatles, but also there's the famous thing about Elvis not being shown. Uh, first of all, they basically had to twist Sullivan's arm to get Elvis on the show. And then when they did, we all know the, the legendary story with that about how Elvis was shot. Um, Bob Dylan walked off the show when he wasn't allowed to play a song that he wanted to. Buddy Holly almost did the same. And of course, there's the famous Jim Morrison Doors story where he was not supposed to say, girl, we couldn't get much higher. And he went ahead and did it because he was Jim Morrison. Actually, I'm not uh, so- aware of a Buddy Holly story. What was that about? Buddy Holly... Um, the Buddy Holly issues were he, he ended up going on the show, but much like Bob Dylan, he was not ha- uh, he was not happy. And I, I can't remember the exact songs, but he was not happy with with he wanted to play a certain song. Mm-hmm. Sullivan team said, no, you can't. Holly went ahead and did it, was unhappy, but uh, and re- was at one point going to say, I'll never go on the show again. But again, the exposure that Sullivan show could give you in that time. You know, we have to remember this is this is not uh, an error where you have. 500 television channels and six streaming services, right. you know, uh, um, that it was hard to ignore. And that's why I see, I, I see when Jagger and the Stones agreed to perform a censored version of their song on the show, that it really was one of the first times the Stones realized the importance of, uh, you know, art is art and art is wonderful and we all love art, but there's also the business side of the music business. You know, it's the music business and understanding that, um, if I want to get our single out here, if I want to get the song out here, I'm on the biggest television program in America. I'm going to have to play ball. Um, and sure he wasn't happy about it. And it's, it's, it's such a great moment in stone's history, but I think it kind of shows where the stones were getting the idea of, you know, we could be the biggest rock band in the world. Sometimes we just got to swallow our artistic pride a little bit. Right. And the thing that, that surprised me was that, that, um, that, that kind of carried over to the radio stations too, in that, that let's spend the night together was the A side of the record. Ruby Tuesday was the B, but more often than not, the radio stations were flipping over the record so that Ruby Tuesday became the number one song in the United States. Yeah, because of the airplay and let's spend the night. I don't think it even cracked the top fifty, did it? No, but it's uh, it's still a very very popular track. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, just just that story has made it more popular. So it's it's sort of one of those those uh, those uh, controversy creates uh, creates uh, buzz. I want to move yeah. into the to, into the seventies a little bit, sure. um, and specifically, let's go with that nineteen seventy two tour. Okay, which I guess yes. would have been to support like Exile on Main Street. Correct. And there were a lot of funky stories going on around that time. And this would also <laughs> have been like the first time that I, you know, I was born in 63. So I don't have any good early memories of, of early Stone stuff. But this would have been around the time that I first became aware of the Rolling Stones as like new records and, you know, that sort of thing. And so, and, and I did grow up in the New York area myself. Okay, I grew up out on Long Island. And... um you would hear, you know, certain stories about things happening and weird stunts that they were going through. And and you mentioned specifically about, you know, Jagger talking about the possibility that he would, you know, get naked on stage for his birthday <laughs> concert and that they were going to release chickens or, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and 
so, you know, again, reinforcing the idea that the, the stones themselves were sometimes the source of these oddball stories that you couldn't always necessarily trust was actually going to happen. Um, but, but one of the things that struck me was you, you told me, uh, you wrote about the, um, there were a couple of birthday parties that took place for him uh, at that time. And there was the first one that, that happened like after the first show, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they, they barely stuck around at all. And then there was a second one a few days later, which was huge. And at the same time, eh, not necessarily very successful as a party because it had a lot of bold face names, as they say in the business, <laughs> you know, which didn't necessarily mesh with the people from the Stones camp who came to the party. Yes. Um, what's sort of interesting about that time in the band is, is that's when the Stones really, and more so, more so Jagger than anyone else, sort of um, encouraged the celebrity hanger-on um, jet-set crowd coming in. I mean, even Truman Capote was a part of that tour, which, um, and he was supposed to write a extensive profile about the tour for Rolling Stone magazine and never did because he was having so much fun being part <laughs> of the Rolling Stone tour. But yeah, it's it's sort of and and yeah, it was this the 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 second birthday party for Jagger was held at the St. Regis Hotel on the on the, on the rooftop and it followed the fourth concert at MS, uh, Madison Square Garden that the Stones played. And yeah, there was uh there was a lot of names. I mean, and uh, guests and and I'm just Going off the top of my head here, uh, Stevie Wonder, who opened for the Stones at the concert, w- was there. But also, you know, names like that you wouldn't immediately associate with the Stones, like Tennessee Williams and Woody Allen, uh, were, were there. And then names that you would, Andy Warhol, Carly Simon, Bob Dylan. Um, uh, so it was sort of an interesting mix of people. Uh, uh, Muddy Waters was entertaining the guests there. He played, he played during, the, uh, during the party. Um, so it's sort of this weird, it's sort of this me- mix of famous people that not all quite fit in the Stones image. Um, but, uh, that was also the time where, where Jagger was spending a lot of time with Lee, Ra- uh, Lee Radswell and a lot of the other, um, sort of celebrity hanger on. So that, that was kind of an interesting, uh, time for the band. And of course, New York being such a center of celebrity culture, there are a lot of people that want to get in on this party regardless. And frankly, I'm sure... If I were there at that time, I would have been trying to get into that party too. <laughs> sure, why not? Um, and it wasn't long after that that uh, Goat's Head Soup happened, and that's where they really started to infuse New York City into the lyrics, and and you start to get the 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 you know the 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 grittiness of New York City in in some of these uh, lyrics. Yes, yes, correct. So Goat's Head uh, Soup um, had. Um, one of one of the uh, more famous lines that gets that it uh, that came out was in the song, and I'm not sure if I could say it on your uh, on your podcast, but the 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 nice name star, of the song star, is Star yeah. Star, <laughs> yes, and it uh, mentions the the name Fun City. came up for New York City from Mayor Lindsay, who uh, in the early 1970s, this is the beginning of the time where New York City got its reputation as being the um, not so great urban landscape that it would become through the 70s and even into, in, into the 80s. Mayor Lindsay came into office with a lot of problems. In fact, his, his first day in office was greeted by a transit strike. And 
as he as a lot of mayors would do to sort of show his support for how the city could still run. He walked across the uh, uh, walk. He walked throughout the city to show that the city was still open for business, even if you couldn't get anywhere. And uh, and when he was asked about the city, he said, well, I still still think it's a very fun city. And that was taken to be a very circ by other people to be a very sarcastic attack at Mayor Lindsay's city, which was after this was it was faced by um, garbage strikes where garbage would just pile up in the streets of the city and photos of this would appear in newspapers all over the country. Um, educational strikes with teachers going on strike. Um, all these bad stories about strike after strike was coming out of this city, which was in fact losing money, uh, mainly because of people moving out of the city into the suburbs, white flight and a lot of other issues with that. So that made it, uh, that fun city made it into the song Star Star. And of course, another song on that album, which I love and I, and I love that the Stones have started playing this in recent years, Dancing with Mr. D, yeah. um, which um, talks about a very sinister song, uh, Mr. D being most likely the devil. Uh, another subject the Stones love to sing about, but uh, about Mr. D uh, being this guy that hangs out in seedy areas of, of cities, including hiding in a corner in New York City, which is this, uh, another lyrical reference to, to uh, New York City on, the, uh, on that album. I got to admit, I was I, I I learned from your book about Fun City being used more ironically than anything else, and I think because again I was about ten when this album came out. I remember also there was you know WABC in New York City. They had a jingle, okay, that <laughs> said that ABC was the fun capital of Fun City. So I was like, okay, so they they kind of meant it, you know, and and so yeah. that, that, that fun city was just one of those things that you know it was the Big Apple. It's fun city. It's just one of those things, and it turns out, nah, we're really when people are saying fun city, they're they're kind of being jerks about it. So mm -hmm. oh, okay, <laughs> so throughout the book, I, I've, I'm seeing references to you know the 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 band members just not getting along, okay, <laughs> and and. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know, and, and I, I heard a re an interview recently with David Lee Roth, and he said the same thing about Van Halen. It's like, you know, nitro and glycerin don't get along very well, but like nitro is okay and glycerin's okay, and you put them together and the explosion happens and everything just, you know, goes really well. And it was like the same kind of thing with the Rolling Stones. It, it, it was like... You know, there was always like these weird little bits of resentment throughout. Like, and it wasn't one of these things where you say, well, yeah, around 1980, this happened. No, they were doing this thing <laughs> like through in the 60s and the 70s, all the way up until yesterday. You know, <laughs> that, yeah. that there's always these stories about, you know, the band is fracturing and these terrible things are happening and there's resentment. And, 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 the, and, and I, I wonder if, if you noticed anything like that where it really does have to have, maybe it's the conflict that creates a better product in the end you know it's 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 funny because somebody uh one of my family members who's who's reading the book who doesn't know a ton about the stone said you know i never realized 
the band had uh, a couple different members. You know, I, obviously I'm familiar with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, but I didn't know about the rest of the other band and, and infighting and all this. And I never, I didn't know as much about this. And they said, is there any band that has ever stayed together with all their members throughout their whole history? Uh, and the pops. only band, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the only band, yeah, th- yeah. And that was like, and, and the first one that came to mind was ZZ Top. I yeah. was like, the same, same three guys been doing it for, for years. And, you know, I don't, I don't know the inner workings of ZZ Top, but they seem like guys that don't seem to fight very often, uh, if at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the Stones, it, 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 there's, there's definitely has always been uh, uh, some, some issues bubbling below the surface. And I think a lot of it, at least from my aspect, I, I, don't, I don't know the guys personally, uh, but from, from my aspect, all my research, all I've done about is the Stones are also a band that have try to stay current at least through you know the beginning of the 1990s from the 60s to the 90s uh, you know they they were definitely trying to stay or uh stay current to musical tastes and you could see that especially on their 80s albums where they yeah. seem like they're really trying to be part of the MTV generation there's a uh, there's a uh, on uh, uh the undercover album there's even a part where where Mick Jagger does this kind of heart half-hearted rap to the, in the song too much blood yeah. um you know and uh you can definitely see them trying to be involved in in trends and at the same time you also have this band that when they're at their best it's when they they're down at their basics doing the blues rock that that made them famous made yeah. them great um and that they have the this this deep affinity for you know um and one line that I keep going back to that uh, that uh, Keith Richards has has said several times, especially when he's the most angry at at Mick Jagger, um, is uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's along the lines of of if you were Mick Jagger, why would you ever want to be anyone else? <laughs> and it's the idea that you are the the greatest, you know, the greatest frontman, the biggest rock star on the planet. Why would you want to try to jump another trend and be something else? And I think especially with the Stones, where you have these two strong personalities in terms of Jagger and Richards writing the material and deciding the direction of the band, um, it becomes very challenging, especially um, when Keith Richards, and this is towards the end of the 70s, was not in the best shape in terms of his drug addictions, where Jagger really did have to carry the band. And then when... Richards got clean or as clean as Keith Richards gets, I guess, I guess I should say, um, um, and says, Hey, I'm back. I'm ready to contribute more. And Jagger says, wait a second, for the last couple of years, I've been the one that's been primary songwriter, primary direction. What do you mean? Now you're back. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a case of strong personalities. And, and frankly, uh, I don't know if the music would be that great if you didn't have that kind of fire and fire. Uh, what was it? Nitro uh, what is uh, you said it about Van Halen? Um, Nitro and glycerin, um, yeah. When they come yeah, together, exactly. there's the bang. <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, you know, and, and we see that time and again with so many bands that that uh, good enough for the Stones though that they've been managed to keep it together. Where uh, a lot of bands in Van Halen's a perfect example where uh, where they haven't been able to to keep that together. I mean, uh, so so I guess. I guess managing personality, you know, sometimes it's not just creating great music. It's also managing personalities. Right. But, but David Lee Roth said the same is like, we never got along right from yeah. day one. We never, ever got along, but I brought something to the band. They bring something to the band. You put it together and it's fantastic. 
But yeah. but yes, every single day is a fight. And even, you know, we get on stage, we do our thing, we do a fantastic show. And he would say something like, man, that show we just did, that was one of the best of my career. And at the same time, it was like, what the hell were you thinking when you did this on stage? Like just <laughs> five seconds later. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and, and, and I can see where they, they made some of those attempts to, to fall. Like some girls, you, you could definitely see both the New York, New York influence, but also like where... They they brought in a little bit of a disco beat, like for for instance, uh, "Miss You." Yes. Okay, but at the same time, it was still kind of a rocker, and and I think Pink Floyd pulled the same thing around the same time with uh, "Another Brick in the Wall." You know, you really Correct. think about that song. That's a disco beat going on behind that record. You know, and and so they they managed to make that work, and then um, but then "Emotional Rescue" specifically was probably the first single of theirs that I was actually disappointed in <laughs> you know and beca- because i'm listening and i'm like what is he trying to do here is he's got these like marvin gay falsettos in this one section now he's back to being mick jagger now he's doing like what is, is that is he is he doing is he doing jim morrison what's going on here you know because just these different segments of of the song and and so i i you know as you know what i was like 17 at that point i was like i'm a little bit confused with this record here yeah yeah, I mean, there was definitely if you got if you got to look at a low point in terms of band cohesiveness in 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 Rolling Stones, it it's got to be the 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 early the mid eighties mm-hmm. after the eighty one tour um, because that was you know MTV had a major effect on the band that people don't quite realize. Um, Jagger was one of the very first rock stars to do the "I Want My MTV" commercials. Right, um, he was. He he got you know Jagger is, has always been such a, such a great showman. I mean, and so much of the Stones' theatrical aspects to their concerts is because of his, his the way he he wants to perform. And so he got MTV from a very early point, where a lot of other legacy bands, for lack of a better term, didn't quite know what to do with this. You know, ah, oh, whatever. We don't we don't we don't need videos. We don't need this. Jagger got it. Um, and uh, you can definitely see that when you start looking at some of his solo solo work, which is a bit of a departure from the Stones. It's it's very contemporary in the way it sounds, and frankly, has not you know, in, in my opinion, has has not aged that well. Not so. Much. Um, yeah, not yeah. I, I I don't think I'm I'm the only person to say that. Um, in fact, Keith Richards would agree with me because he was very unhappy with Jagger going off and doing solo records because, you know, it was always the Jagger-Richards music partnership. And now, wait a second, we got we got a solo record coming out. Right, um, but, but that's something else that also kind of confused me because, the, 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 again, going all the way back almost to the beginning, they all had kind of their own thing going on. Charlie Watts was kind of a jazz guy. Okay. And so more often than not, when they went to New York City, and I remember you mentioned this a couple of times, you know, something, you know, Richards would go check out this thing, Jagger would go check out that thing, Charlie Watts would go look for jazz. Yep. Okay. And, and they also tended to work on other projects. Okay. Where Ron Wood would do a thing for a little while and Keith Richards would work on this thing and Mick Jagger played on a Yoko Ono record and, you know, that, that sort of thing. (laughs) But, but, you know, again, if this is the pattern, Okay, that they're all going to work on some other thing. Then why was it such a big deal when they started working on solo albums? Because at that point, it really wasn't a big deal for a group to break out a solo artist, you know, a, a solo act once in a while and then return to the group the way it would have been when the Beatles were still together. Correct. Yeah, I think more so. And again, uh, uh, it's it's it was it was mainly Richards getting upset at, at Jagger 
pursuing this. Uh, Richard's opinion was this was getting in the way of Stone's projects. Um, going off and, and, you know, uh, and especially a lot of Jagger's uh, early 80s albums, like she, she or, or uh, Jagger's first couple of solo albums, first two solo albums, were recorded almost exact same time as Stone's albums, you know, very within the same time frame as Stone's albums were being recorded. And so it was the cohesiveness in the studio that they had for 20 years um, was, was not there anymore. And as you and I both know, uh, you know, this was also at the time where it was more and more common for bands to totally record their parts completely separately, not, not, not going into the studio as a cohesive unit, but that's not how the Stones did it. So there was a lot changing uh, in, in, in that. And, you know, also it could be a, a matter of, of just Richards at this point now getting ready to devote himself to Stone's concerts after, or Stone's projects after being a little bit out of sorts in the late 70s and seeing uh, Jagger running off and working with other uh, musicians, other producers that he wasn't happy with. Right, uh, and, and, course, and, that, and that was the feeling I got for you when, from what you wrote about, like the tattoo you sessions. What was I, I? I almost got the feeling that this was an album that I don't think any of them were together at any given time. The way the way you wrote it is like, except maybe at the end when they finally did some mixing and, and that kind of thing. But it, it was like almost as though like Jagger did his thing over in this city, and Richards did his thing over in that city, and Watts was somewhere else altogether. And like you know that that sort of thing. And, and later on, they just kind of brought it all together. Right, right. And what's what's incredible about the the uh, Tattoo You album is for a lot of people that's the last great or very good Rolling Stones album. And for a lot of that album is, is made up of old songs. Yeah. Um, in fact, wait, like waiting on a friend has Mick Taylor playing a solo because it was an old song that they had recorded. Um, and just hadn't gotten around to finishing. Uh, Start Me Up famously was like a reggae song kind of before <laughs> it became the song that we all know and love today. Um, and so that's what's sort of interesting that Tattoo You was such a successful album and then followed by their um, first really big stadium tour, the, the 1981 tour. And yet the album itself was very piecemeal. Um, and yet the following, you know, the, the, the Stones attempts to, to really follow that up never really gelled uh, for the rest of the 80s. And, and certainly also Charlie Watts was going through his own um, uh, addictions at the time as well. So there, there was definitely a, a lot of cohesiveness that, that went out the window after Tattoo You, after the support tour. All right, let me, let me before we move forward, I want to jump back a little bit into, uh, sure. uh, I guess, 1978, I believe. It was uh, the, their appearance on uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yes. Okay. Which, again, I remember seeing this as a kid. <laughs> and I remember the whole thing, like, you know, Jagger kind of mugging on the, uh, they would, what was it, the, the interview with Tom uh, Snyder. Mm-hmm. And, and uh you know, and I was actually remembering this not long ago and trying to explain the bit to a friend of mine who had never seen Tom Snyder on the Tomorrow <laughs> Show, you know, and, and how Dan Aykroyd was doing this impression and, you know, Jagger was just kind of riding with it. And, and, but, but here's, here's the thing. So they did, they did three different songs, right? And so you, you had the incident, well, not really an incident, but it was certainly something you didn't often see on TV at that time was, was, uh, during the the second song, during Respectable, uh, Jagger licking Ron Wood's face, 
but the other but the other thing that that struck me was was you you said he was hoarse probably because of the the rehearsals and i remember yeah this, this something's not quite right here but i've also seen suggestions that they might have uh, had a few okay mm. uh before the before the show so there was my could have been a little bit of drunkenness going on there um but and and then at one point during shattered um, Jagger takes off his jacket and he kind of like starts smacking Ron Wood with it. And so for another portion of the song, you see Ron like actively avoiding Jagger as he moves around on the stage. <laughs> but here's what, I'm, now here's what, I want your opinion on this, okay? Because I've seen several different arguments about this one on the internet. So just, what do you think about this? When they get to the line, I can't give it away on 7th Avenue, Jagger opens the line with, he says something like, Schmata, 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 I can't give it away on 7th Avenue. Which could be a reference to the fashion district because the schmata is, you know, a little piece of cloth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other people are saying, no, that's nonsense. So where do you, where, where do you lie on that particular line? I've always compared the line in my, in, in what I think, I've always compared it to the line from the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer. Um, where they talk about getting the come-ons from the whores on 7th Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the, uh, the, ex- the expression to me, can't give it away on 7th Avenue, and Jagger saying, I can't give it away on 7th Avenue, is, is, a, uh, is because that whole song, Shattered, which I just love, I think it's brilliant, um, is about the dirty seediness of New York City at that time. Um, is you know a prostitute not being able to give it away, not getting a, not getting a John on Seventh Avenue, um, but uh, yeah, certainly the cleaner version is to talk about the fashion district. But uh, I always I always took it because the rest of the song is you know don't mind the maggots, people dress in uh, uh, plastic bags. You know I, I just see that it fits right in there, and, and it always to me was whether or not it intentionally felt like a callback to that to that line from the boxer. Okay, I, I, I just kind of wonder, because it's not as though the song is filled with nonsense lyrics. I mean, the only other one I can think of is Shadoobie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Schmata having a very specific New York City connotation, especially with 7th Avenue, yeah. you know, that one actually yeah, makes a little bit of sense for me, you know. Not that it is a direct reference, but, you know, yeah, kind of oblique, yeah, maybe. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so let me jump back into the 80s, and, and you mentioned Waiting on a Friend, and that is a video that was shot in New York City, was it not? Yes, yes, famously on St. Mark's Place, right in front of the same, uh, the, the opening of the song is right in front of the same building that appears on the front cover of uh, Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti, so it's got a lot of rock and roll history there. Yeah. All right. Um, so 1983, I thought this was actually kind of a return. Uh, you know, but, well, Tattoo U was a very strong album. I liked it a lot. And then... Undercover of the Night, I love that track, okay? And Mm -hmm. at that time, I was in college. I was working at my school radio station, so we had some high-end equipment I could play with. Man, did I crank that record a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. And and that that album was recorded in New York, was it not? Uh, Yes, parts parts of it, like, a lot... At the time, and, and starting from, from this point, the Stones would record, record pieces and mix in different pieces. But yes, parts of Undercover were, were recorded there. Okay. Now, was it the, the solo projects that had the albums coming further apart at this point? Uh, solo projects. Um, also, um, Watts uh, was, was not in the best of health during the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we mentioned, the solo projects. And also the, the changing nature of the industry in general. Uh, I mean... 
back in the 60s, it would be common for bands to put out two albums in a year, uh, if not, if, or, or as, they're, as they're pumping out singles as well. Um, the Stones at, this, at the time, like much of the other band, uh, bands, were starting to space out some albums at the time. But I think the infi- between the infighting, solo projects, health issues, that, that all contributed to spacing out the albums. Right, okay. Because it was, it was two years to Undercover the Night, and then it was three to Dirty Work. And Dirty Work was an album I kind of forgot about, because I was thinking, when I was thinking back on the, the, the career, and I was like, yeah, I remember Undercover the Night, and then, I don't know, it felt like nothing happened until Steel Wheels. And then I went back and I looked at the discography, and it was like, oh yeah, there was that other album in between, where they did Harlem Shuffle and, um, what was the other, One Hit to the Body. Yep. And, and so can you talk about that album a little bit? Yeah, uh, so that was certainly an album that, that um, shows the Stones in a bit of a disarray. Uh, and the best way to tell that, really, is if you look at the, 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 the writing credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has the least amount of Jagger Richards songs, just Jagger Richards songs, uh, than any album since they stopped being uh, essentially a cover band in the early 60s and started doing their own material. Uh, it's Jagger Richards with some other writer, uh, Jagger Richards and Wood. Ronnie Wood finally got some writing credits. Um, <laughs> it's uh, covers like Harlem Shuffle. Um, so you can look at that album and really tell there that, that there, was, there was something not quite right there. Um, there's a lot of guests on that album as well um, that that um you know playing guitar parts playing drums charlie watts doesn't appear on a couple isn't isn't the drummer on some uh, i think it's uh anton fig who was at the time uh in the uh the david letterman's band on his sh- uh, his show he 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 um he does some of the drum tracks so once you start looking at the album credits you can go hmm there's something not quite right there and of course um one of the reasons why you why it also gets forgotten is the stones didn't tour after that album and they didn't tour yeah. in America from 81 until the, uh, the, uh, steel wheels steel tour wheels. in 89. So there's an, there's an eight year gap where the stones did not tour in America, which, which even today is rare for the stones. And they've certainly slowed down their touring commitments, uh, now, now, nowadays, but, but eight years is a huge gap for the stones not to tour, uh, the United States. And that's certainly why another reason why the album gets kind of lost is because there was no support for it uh, on the road. Right. Now, let me ask you that. I don't remember the date for this, but I do remember you, you talking about this incident in, in the book with Anton Fig specifically. Okay. Uh, with Charlie Watts, he had a band and they were going to play on the David Letterman show. Okay. <laughs> yes. And there was a little bit of friction because, because the band, the, the Letterman house band, okay, always, always played with the musical guest, okay, unless they were a cappella. And that was just what happened. So why did this come as a surprise to Charlie Watts? Like, why did it suddenly turn into a big problem? Um, Charlie Watts doesn't strike me as a guy who watches Letterman on a regular basis. Okay. or you know, and But it just seems like that would be like one of the things, like, we'd like you to be on the show, and by the way, this is, what's, this is how we do it. You know, right, like, like right. this, this shouldn't be, because if I recall correctly, like Watts canceled like right before the show taping started. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was sort of a last minute cancellation, which was, uh, uh, made, made headlines in, in New York, uh, in, in the, in the post and the daily news of Charlie Watts pulls out. Um, yeah, it, it seemed like an odd thing to me because it was something that I personally didn't remember. Um, and certainly I found a lot of press on it. And then as I, as I was reading into it, I go, oh yeah, okay. Like jogging my memory. 
And um, what what I found surprising is exactly the same thing is is you know especially since Paul Schaefer is so respected in the uh, music community. I mean he's he's the band leader on pretty much any major or has been, you know certainly not as much anymore but for for decades he was the band leader on uh, when there there was the rock and roll hall of fame inductions mm-hmm. uh, concert for new york paul schaefer was the go-to guy to be the music director um so and uh, you know this also for charlie watts was a big thing too because this was his jazz band and jazz has always been near and dear to charlie watts's heart um, and when he's not with the Stones, he wants to play jazz. And part of it, I think, was him also trying to figure out how is Paul Schaefer and the CBS Orchestra going to fit in with my jazz group that I have here, you know, that I'm trying to show off, trying to trying to get some legitimate credibility as a jazz musician, which he totally deserves. But, you know, this was a new venture for him, you know, being known as and, and we've seen this with countless rock uh, stars that suddenly decide they want to do some sort of uh you know, blues album, and, and a lot of them do it well, and then there's some that do it quite badly. Um, so I think this was Charlie Watts' idea that he wanted to prove himself with his new band outside of the Stones, and he was not going to have Paul Schaefer mugging at the piano, uh, uh, mugging at the keyboards while they, they played their uh, played some jazz standards. So that's that's my best guess, but I, I'm, I was surprised when I was going over it because that was such a standard thing of, of, the, uh, of the Letterman band. All right, the last album that I want to talk about is Steel Wheels, okay, and, and the tour that followed up that. And again, like, the Rolling Stones kind of intersected with my life, because at that point, I was working with the record world chain. And I, I, so this album came out, and I was like, wow, this is, again, this is pretty good stuff, you know. And so I remember playing it a lot in the store, which, you know, kind of irritated some of the, uh, some of the other employees. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, 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 not necessarily like a return. Yeah, I guess. I guess a return to to the basics and their, their general, you know, Rolling Stones form. And and you know, we uh, we had videos that we had to play in store, and uh, and uh, mixed emotions was among them. So we saw that video a lot. Um, and and again, it was it was pretty solid album, was it not? Yes. Okay. So so but but the the thing that that I remember also about that was that tour was. Was it was pretty like they they had done big venues previously, okay? You know, stadium arena tours, that kind of thing. That was that was pretty much of a thing at that point. Um, but this was, if I'm not mistaken, one of their most like technically complex. Yes, this and and really, and I I devoted a lot in my book to this because the Stones really reinvented the stadium, or or maybe not even reinvented, created the template for the massive stadium tours that were later copied by bands like U2 and Metallica and uh, even even going up to like what Taylor Swift does when she does stadium tours the idea of making of how how to make a stadium show a must see show for the guy in the front row to the guy sitting in the very last seat all the way up by the rafters three three seats away from the men's room you know yeah. um it's, it's how do we do that? Because certainly stadium concerts have happened before. I mean, the Beatles played Shea Stadium, uh, and that's such a legendary concert. But if you go back to that concert, everyone else not only talks about what a major moment it was in rock history, they talk about the, all the problems. There was no amplification technology that existed that could have made anyone hear the Beatles play on the field. Um, they were over 
just dominated by screaming fans. They played on this tiny little stage in like right behind second base where the baseball diamond is still visible. You know, nobody is on the field. Um, the Stones figured out, figured out when they put together the Steel Wheel Tour how to make a stadium tour with this massive stage that could just, just you know, sh- uh, have effects. Uh, you know, it really ties into... Uh, I, I, always, I like to uh, liken it to the fact of what was going on, to bro- on Broadway at the time with, with these musicals like Phantom of the Opera that were becoming spectacles right. as opposed to just people singing on stage, which is always, you know, wonderful, but the spectacle of, of, of having lights and action and, and being a little bit of something for everybody. The Stones also reinvented the concert tour by having two traveling stages at the same time, um, which enabled them to, as they're performing in one city, having a stage set up in another city. So they can quickly, you know, they don't have to bring the whole stage to the other city. Um, they can have send that stage to another city as they go and they play on the second stage. Um, and it became this just uh, remarkable system that uh, that made them by far at the time Steel Wheels was just and I don't have the exact number in my head, but I know it just broke every record for stadium concert tours ever. And they played more than they could. At, and and where there's the Beatles played one show at Shea Stadium, the Stones did six um, and sold them all out. And they were able to do that because they had this touring mechanism behind them. They were selling merchandise, not just at the merch booths, but at department stores. Because, hey, even if you can't go to the concert, you could get, you could get a shirt at JCPenney's and pretended you did. You know? um, and what, what, what followed that uh, Steel Wheels tour also set the blueprint for future Stones tours in the sense that they had a live album that came out afterwards. Right. Words. Um, they did a concert film. That came out afterwards. And this is a model that the Stones have pretty much followed through all of their tours afterwards. That, you know, you get the concert, you get all the merch, uh, or you get the concert tour, you get all the merch devoted to that tour, you get all of the, uh, you get the live album, and you get the concert film. And this way, you keep generating revenue. And this is when Rolling Stones really became Rolling Stones Incorporated um, and became this sort of corporate entity in addition to playing such great music. And, uh, you know, a lot of bands in the 90s and even today that, that do stadium tours, the, the few that can, really have the Stones to thank for creating that model that made it so, so uh, such a way to, to make so much money and so much make such a big splash with your audience in all the shows you possibly could while on the tour. Right. Cause at that point, I mean, they, I, I remember like around the same time I had gone to see, uh, it was like Rod Stewart and I saw Billy Joel. Okay. And they were, Billy Joel was like a very bare stage. Okay. It was like, you know, him and the band and they were doing their thing and his concession to, you know, the people in the crummy seats was that he would change keyboards from time to time. Okay. <laughs> but, but he acknowledged it. He's like, you know, right now you guys are in the crappy seats and you guys are in the good seats, but later on, I'm going to play over there. And then you guys are going to be in the crappy seats and you're going to be in the good seats, you know, but, but it was, it was a pretty sparse stage as far as that. And then Rod Stewart was, was kind of the same way. I mean, there was some like big geometric shapes on the stage itself, which allowed him to kind of like duck into the back and do a quick uh, outfit change and then run out again. But what I the the impression I got from from Steel Wheels was was that the the stage itself was just a very very complicated thing you know and and you know as you mentioned with with having two setups so they could set up because it took so long to put together right 
that that really that's what you had to do if you're going to just keep cranking out the shows because otherwise you would have to wait like a couple of days at the next location yeah. before you could even think about playing anything. Correct. So this was this was just sort of re you know sort of created the model that so many other bands have since followed when they when they've taken on tours of this of this size. Uh, but and really it was the Stones that pioneered it, and you know it was something that they followed on. You know as they they've scaled back the size of the stage a little bit now that they don't play you know they don't play as many shows as they as they do on a tour because those are some expensive stages. But uh, they certainly do. Still try to follow that model. They have, you know, they they also created the model of having a the B stage where they, you know, the the core band goes down in the audience and plays as close to the audience as they can get um, at the end of a catwalk. You know, this was all sort mm-hmm. of innovations that the Stones worked into the stadium concert tour that just so many other bands have have taken since. Okay, so let, let's come back to New York City at this point because the city had had changed. So, where what was their relationship with with New York by the time Steel Wheels came around? So, at that time, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the seventies and the eighties, um, late seventies and 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 most of the eighties, especially when what what is very ironic is we were talking about how uh, Jagger and Richards were were butting heads throughout much of the eighties, yet. That, that, that was the time where both of them were spending a tremendous amount of time in New York and only lived a couple blocks away from each other. And meanwhile, they're sniping at each other in the press, but they, uh, they happen to you know, be practically neighbors. At the same point, Wood was also living in the city uh, off and on in the 80s as well. So you had three Rolling Stones running around the city in, in, in the 80s. Towards 89 and Steel Wheels, um, you know, uh, Jagger has always maintained multiple residencies. This was around the time Keith moved up to Connecticut. Um, so we still had a, you know, close, close, uh, uh, area to the city, he had an apartment in the city, of course. Um, so they had those connections there, but also as, as you mentioned, this is where the stones and the city sort of reflected each other. This was the time, uh, getting into the nineties where New York city went from being sort of this ugly, uh, uh, crime ridding, area that it was depicted in countless movies and television shows and we saw so many cop dramas on tv about new york come out at this time to being the tourist capital of the united states where um times square which um from my memory was not the place you wanted to go because it was you know filled with uh, all kinds of things that you're not supposed to uh see uh in, in any sort of civilized city um now it's and and all of a sudden became its transition. Forty Second Street transitioned into what is essentially uh, New York City's version of uh, Disneyland or a giant outlo- outdoor mall. And this was around the time where the Stones themselves were to to put upon and please forgive me becoming a little respectable mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that they were becoming this 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 corporate brand and New York City itself was becoming a corporate brand. Um, and uh, I saw a very close relationship in that, where they almost seemed like New York, New York City's tourist board and the Rolling Stones were trading ideas. I have no, I have no uh, confirmation that that actually happened, but it seemed like they were feeding off the, the same sort of energy on how to, how to uh, make, 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 more, make more money, make, more, uh, make, make a lot of, uh, make a bigger splash with their audiences. Yeah, I remember that transformation. At that point, I was actually commuting to and from work and... Um, I had to pass through that area every day, and I was watching as as stuff got you know torn down and rebuilt and remodeled and, and that sort of thing. And I remember 
somewhere between Times Square and the Port Authority, somebody had opened an arcade, right? You know, like for video games and, and that kind sure. of thing. And I will never forget this. There was a sign out front that said, a handful of quarters can still get you excited on 42nd Street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a great sign. Well, uh, do, you, do you have anything else that you want to share with us? Uh, well, what I, I, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, this was really fun to talk. I, I love talking. I love talking about the stones, of course, love talking about the book, but what I, I have to say is what was really fun about writing this. And, and I talked about it a little bit when we talked about, uh, let's, let's spend some time together is, uh, is sort of investigating a lot of this, the stories that have come up, um, and, uh, that, you know, there, there's so many mythological figures in, in music of the, of the 60s and before that. I mean, um, I, was, I was talking to someone else about Netflix has this new documentary on, on Bob Dylan that was directed by Scorsese uh, about the Rolling Thunder Review Tour. That's, that's like 50% fact and 50% fiction. Hmm. Uh, and there's, there's a ton of writers coming out writing about how the... Uh, uh, of what's what's true and what's not of that documentary, and I felt like I was doing a similar thing with this book, um, sort of delving into a lot of these stories about the Stones and especially their time in New York City and the legends and the myths that have accumulated over the years, and and what's true and what's fact, what's sort of true, what's 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 still the jury is still out on some of this stuff, um, you know, and, and and covering the whole time of the band, like like uh, like uh, you mentioned before that. You know, thinking that because of the titles, can't give it away on Seventh Avenue. That be very some girls focused, but I was really happy to, to to focus on the whole changing history of this phenomenal rock group uh, from Brian Jones, who who doesn't get a ton of time in my book, but get, gets enough mm-hmm. uh, to 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 Mick Taylor, who who has actually more New York, New York history after he left the Stones, and uh, and how the band had this impact and. And you know we didn't. We, we I could talk about this for hours, but getting into the '90s when they did all their publicity stunts, you know, the Steel Wheels tour picked off, kicked off with their with their press conference at Grand Central Terminal, um, and then they uh, the the uh, the Licks tour kicked off with uh, the the landing the blimp in the Bronx with the with the tongue logo on it. Uh, so many cool New York moments throughout their whole history, and I'm, I was just so happy to write this book. And I, and I hope a lot of people enjoy reading it as much as I liked it. I know that's cliche to say, but I, I honestly do feel that way. Right. I especially enjoyed the story of the flatbed concert. So. <laughs> ah, yes. One of their first publicity stunts in New York. But. Right. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to uh, speak to me. I appreciate this. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you having me on. How about that, huh? Thanks again to Chris McKittrick for a great chat. You can find Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue and some of Chris's other stuff on Amazon.com. And go check him out at Chris McKitt. That's Chris, M-C-K-I-T, dot com. Where you'll find all kinds of cool links. That's a full lid for this week's show. If you want to get in touch with me, well, you can email me at HowGoodPodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at HowGoodItIsPod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits and links. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we mark the 50th anniversary of human beings landing on the moon. It's going to be yet another special show. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.